Welcome to Addiction in the Family, Episode 38, Family Helping Each Other Find Recovery. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addictions affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction is spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga, and I'm a clinical social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mine Out Emotional Wellness Center in Texas. And I'm the author of the books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. And I'm Kira Ariaga, addiction counselor intern and recovery coach at Windmill. Casey and I were in our addictions together for over 10 years and have now been in recovery together for almost twice that long. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but just as important is that Kira and I have lived the experience of being family to addiction as both children and adults. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. In this episode, we interview Deanna and Travis, a brother and sister who describe their recovery journey from a distant relationship darkened by addiction and compulsive behaviors they barely recognized to being able to rely on each other as a vital recovery support. Each describes what it was like before, how things transformed, and what it is like now. All this after a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. Let's hear that interview with Deanna and Travis. I just want to welcome you both and ask you if you'd each introduce yourself and tell us what are you doing on a program called Addiction in the Family? Uh, yes, I'm Deanna. I've been in Al-Anon recovery for about five years. So I'm here with my brother to talk about addiction, how it's affected our family. My name is Travis B. I am an addict and an alcoholic. I have been clean now for just under three and a half years. And I'm here because I have firsthand knowledge of addiction, alcoholism, and how that affects my family as a whole. Right on. Well, I'm so glad that both of you are here. What I'd like to do to start off is give us a little bit of your story. Uh, Travis, if you don't mind starting off just talking a little bit about your experience as someone with an addiction, but also as a family member, because I'm willing to bet, tell me if I'm wrong, that Travis, you're not the first person in your family to invent addiction from scratch. Definitely not inventing it from scratch. There's definitely been addiction inside the family in one way or another. But, you know, my story, I guess, it starts as far back as I can remember because I never really felt like I fit in. always felt awkward. And the thing that I could say 
that makes the most sense to someone who doesn't understand, I guess, is I never really felt like I fit into my own skin. It's a very strange thing. So, you know, when I was like 13 or 14, I was introduced to all sorts of drugs and alcohol. And that really was able to ease that anxiety that I felt. And so I knew from then on that that was my thing. Like, as long as I could numb that feeling, that's where I wanted to be. That was my the pocket. That's where I wanted to sit. And, you know, really very quickly, it set off to be a problem. I wouldn't have told you that at the time that it was a problem. It took years, years for me to even realize that I had a problem. It seemed like I was on every four years, I would end up where I would self-destruct, where I was using, and I guess I don't really like the term, but for lack of a better one, I was functioning. I was a functioning addict or as a functioning alcoholic, and I was doing well, 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 and all of a sudden I would just spectacularly crash and burn. And then I would pick myself up. You know, that the first time I crashed and burned, I ended up getting kicked out of my house, and I was effectively homeless. I was living on couches and I was living in hotels. I didn't have like a mailing address anymore. And then I joined the military and I did really well in the military the whole time, though. I was, you know, all of my frustrations and all of my use of drugs and alcohol just poured right into alcohol alone, which ended up becoming my real drug of choice. I was in the Navy where, of course, drinking was kind of almost encouraged. And I did really well there. And then a about four years, I did a spectacular crash, and they politely asked me to leave. And then I thought my life was over, but I ended up picking myself back up. I built myself back up the whole time using and drinking, and then I spectacularly crashed again. And at that point, I like decided that I was kind of done with life, really. I didn't want to be on this train anymore. And I decided that my real problem was with grain alcohol, that I couldn't be drinking the rise and the liquors anymore. And so I just continued to drink regular like beer and switching the four locos. And if anybody knows four locos, that's a crazy thing to be what you prefer to drink. And the next four years I drank, drank, drank and spectacularly crashed again until, you know, like my body was shutting down. Like it wasn't working anymore. What was working at one point no longer worked for me. And it was a scary feeling. It left me feeling hopeless. And that's when I finally had said out loud that I think I have a problem. And, and, you know, meanwhile, my family's like, well, yeah, we know that. And that's, you know, the selfishness of the disease is meanwhile, I'm doing all this and I'm not even thinking about how it's affecting my family, but it's affecting my mom. It's affecting my brother, my sister, it's affecting my children and my wife. And I don't even see it because I think I'm just doing it to myself. Actually, that would be a great moment to see Deanna. I'd like to bring you in Rewinding back to Travis being 13, 14, at this stretch of time that he's talking about going through this cycle, I want to see what that looked like from your side. So, you know, Travis and I, we didn't come into each other's lives until what? I think I was 15. You might have been 14. Mm -hmm. So right around that same time. Yeah. So there was a lot of pressure on me growing up, being an only child. And then when our families merged, I think a lot of attention was on Travis. And so it was interesting because for me, it kind of gave me freedom <laughs> to do what I was doing on my own, you know, engaging in my own stuff and unhealthy behaviors, because unfortunately the parents were just focused on Travis. Are you comfortable saying what were some of the things that you were doing? Yeah. So, you know, I really struggled with love addiction. So I was in multiple relationships, doing different things, sneaking off. I would engage in some drug intake, but I would never get caught, right? Because nobody was focused on me. So 
I was just kind of doing my own thing. Nobody noticed that I also struggled with a food addiction. I struggled with an eating disorder, right? So I was just kind of going under the radar. I was nobody's concern. So in my head at the time, life was easy for me because I could do what I wanted to do. Of course, all that caught up to me later. I mean, I had to figure that out. You know, Travis and I, I don't think we really were able to connect. I think there are times where we tried, but you were doing your own thing. I was doing my own thing. And later, Travis, when you went into the military, I remember how well you were doing. And for some reason, we connected while you were in the military and we had a positive relationship. I also remember our parents coming to me and being like, what are you doing with your life? You know, why can't you be like Travis? (laughs) And that was hard, right? Because I grew up to where what you achieved equaled love. So therefore, love was conditional. So if I wasn't doing the right things, then I wasn't loved by my family. So there's a lot of rejection there. And I think I felt a lot of rejection from Travis too, right? When we weren't connecting, right, I wasn't getting what I needed and what we were supposed to have a sibling relationship. And I didn't even know what that meant or looked like. So Deanna, you were an only child. Uh-huh. Travis, what did that look like for you? Did you? Do you have other siblings? I do. I have a full-blooded older brother. And then I have a half brother who's at least 10 years younger than me. I really don't have a relationship with my younger half brother. And then my older brother, the way that Dee says that she doesn't know what like a real like sibling relationship is, I don't know if I really did either because my older brother, I guess I always looked at him as more of like a father figure. He was the older male that I had to look up to because my relationship with my dad really was non-existent around the time that I started using is about the time that I no longer saw my dad. And before that, I was seeing him like every other weekend. So I think I always looked like my brother was the, always the constant older male figure in my life. And so I don't know, having a sibling, I, it's still something that I guess I don't know if I've ever had a normal thing. And I was talking to someone the other day, I don't know if I've ever had like a normal experience with a family, period. I think my family is just different. I know all families are, but as far as when our families merged, my mother was married a couple times before, and I felt like I'd been burned by stepfathers before. By the time I like accepted them as a dad, they would be gone. So, you know, there was this new guy in the house, and he's got a daughter. And I just, I think at the time, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to get burned again. I'm going to do my own thing. So I imagine under the circumstances, it would have been pretty hard for you to try and bond with or connect with Deanna. Yeah, I think so. I think by that time, the walls had been built up. And Deanna, you're coming out of being an only a child and achiever and all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, guess what? You've got a bunch of siblings. Yeah, that, it was just very different. I didn't know how to act or live, you know, with them. And out of curiosity, did anyone talk to you guys about any of those things? Not me. <laughs> Not that I can recall, no. that I mean, I can tell you why, but I don't really remember much of that merger. I remember we moved into a new house. I remember that our bedrooms were right next to each other. We had like a Jack and Jill situation going on. But I mean, I don't remember being in that house a whole lot. I think you and me, Travis, like we almost at one point, we lived there different times, Mm -hmm. right? Like if I was living with dad, I don't remember you living in that house. And then when I wasn't living there, you were there. Yeah. It was like ships passing in the night the whole time. 
So what I'm hearing is both of you are running wild a bit. <laughs> Travis joins the military, gets some structure. D, you're like, okay, we're going to start to connect. Mm-hmm. Deanna, had you noticed at all that cycle that Travis is talking about? Where it's like four years and then crash, four years and crash, and like that. I became conscious of it when you were out of the military. When you got out and you were, were struggling then. That's when I realized there might be a problem. I was like, man, he was doing so well and we were all so proud of him. But I think it was, I want to say 2015, and I remember this because it was my first job at a treatment center. And when I was really studying addiction and immersing in that, and not only was I recognizing some of my own patterns, but then it made sense your patterns a little bit, but I couldn't help you. And when you say, you know, I couldn't help you, Deanna, what was that like for you to recognize it and feel like you couldn't do anything? So I do think that there was some effort from my end, but it wasn't a good effort. In fact, this is where before I was ever in Al-Anon, I think when you and Chelsea had moved home. And just to clarify for audience, Chelsea is your wife? Yes, she's my wife. And there was some recognition of a drinking problem. For me, I was trying to help or rescue or something, but kind of from behind the scenes. And I was trying to do this whole puppet play, telling people what to do and directing everybody, right? How'd that go? Yeah, it did not go well. I think everybody in the family was in a cycle of resentment, frustration. Everybody was taking it out on each other. I mean, because it wasn't just you, Trav. Like everybody was reacting and not just towards you, but towards each other, right? And so it was a very sick cycle that wasn't productive. Deanna, I can see that sort of like you're working in a treatment center, you're gaining some knowledge. You're like, okay, I'm going to jump in and fix this. Mm-hmm. I have to ask, did that impact your relationship with Travis and his wife? Yeah, I had resentment with everybody. Nobody was doing what they were supposed to do, right? Travis was still drinking. They had a son to support and all that. And, and everybody's still continuing in the cycle and nobody's doing what I think that they should be doing. Right. And so me trying to help everybody, there's some selfishness to that. And then when they weren't doing what they were supposed to, of course, I was angry and resentful and frustrated and it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable being around the family. When you say there was some selfishness to it, do you mind explaining that a little bit? you know, one thing that I really struggle with is belonging. And so being a part of, right, whether it's being part of a family or a group or something. So when I'm trying to help, right, maybe there is some selfishness there of self-seeking validation. Maybe I'm trying to get something in return, whether it's emotionally or something. And, you know, I later recognize that, but when I wasn't receiving that, it was natural for me to get resentful and for me to feel more angry and for it to charge up all those underlying things I'm already struggling with. And Travis, do you remember Deanna trying to jump in? I don't know if I necessarily remember her trying to jump in. Um, Cause like she said, I think it was a little bit more behind the scenes. And I mean, I was just in a self-recycle too. So I had blinders on to a whole lot, but I do remember like the sickness in the family as a whole. I do remember like, uncomfortable Christmas and me just I just didn't want to be there I would find a corner and I would go hide and I'd play on my phone and I would just immerse myself in that because you know I'm the kind of selfish addict and alcoholic that whatever I can do just take myself out of the situation is that's what I'm going to do I'm not going to face anything head on 
because that's what I've been doing my whole life is not facing anything head on. So I don't know if I necessarily remember specifically her trying to solve anything or if only y'all would do what I want to, I'd feel better. I don't know if I remember any of that, but I do remember the very uncomfortable of being in like my parents' house or being at my brother's house. Anytime that the whole family was together, it was just not a, a cohesive family unit. Yeah, and I'm really hearing that and the way it went down and, and maybe the way it was set up. And Dan, if I can ask you, Travis was saying he doesn't remember much history of addiction on his side of the family. What about you on yours? Yeah, so my uh, grandfather, he was an alcoholic. He died from lung cancer right before I was born. And my mom, she has the adult child of alcoholic symptoms. You know, we've, you know, that's been an open discussion between us the past few years. And her brother, my uncle, passed away last year from alcoholism. So that's a, definitely a pattern on my mom's side. Travis and I have had discussions. Maybe we see some addict traits with my own dad. And I see a lot of those traits with me, you know, whether it's an eating disorder for me, being a workaholic or my love addiction patterns, right? Like all that stems from somewhere. And I've seen those patterns in my own family. So going into therapy, being in the program for many years, definitely have noticed those things and for me to work on, on my own. Well, I think that's brilliant to be able to make that shift from everyone else needs to change so I can be okay which both of you have some amount of that going on, right? Like I need to change something so that I can feel okay, whether it's changing my own chemical stuff going on inside my brain, or I need to change everyone around me, which we want to get really technical. It's still a way to try and change your own brain chemistry. It's just more roundabout. There is that thought of like, okay, this feels uncomfortable. I need to change it. And being able to recognize what are some of the ways that I do that? Like Travis, I love that you said like, hey, if it's not the bottle, it could be the phone, you know? If it's not the phone, it'll be Sudoku. It's whatever. It's whatever I need to do to sort of tune out. And, and where, Deanna, you can get caught up in that in your own compulsive behavior, but also in trying to fix and control other people. Like you said, if you would change, if you would act right, then I'd be okay. And it's one of those big lies around compulsive behavior is that if I could just get the tumblers to fall into place, then I'd be okay. And then, of course, even worse, now I need to keep them that way, which pretty much never works out. <laughs> right. <laughs> even if you get everyone to behave, they're not going to stay behaved. Even if you can get to that nice, mellow, high, or drunk, it's not going to stay that way. We're always stuck chasing it more and more and more. So, in there, uh, Deanna, I appreciate you talking a little bit about your own history and the family history. I think it partly jumped out because as soon as somebody says, well, I started to go work in the addiction field, pretty much everybody I know that works at a treatment center has a reason to be there. Unless they just stumble in, there was a one and they're like, oh, I guess I'll try that out. In my experience, those folks don't stick around very long. The people who stick around at addiction treatment are people who feel a connection to it. And were you aware of some of that connection when you started working in the field? No. So that's the God moment there. <laughs> I had a friend who worked at a treatment center and uh, I was waiting on my license to come in. They told me about this job. I applied. I had another job opportunity as well. And it's just so happened that fell through and the treatment center job came through. So I didn't have any experience working in addiction and then obviously very unaware of my own family addiction patterns. It was one of those, I got a job at a treatment center and some reason I felt so connected with this population 
not understanding why, like, wow, you know, I totally get this spiritual malady. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where I kind of grew a passion there. And then as I started reading more and helping people more, and I'm like, why do I relate to this so much? And I remember reading Pia Melody's Facing Codependency. And all of a sudden there's this light bulb in my head and everything just made sense. Like I, you know, for so long, I felt so crazy and very uncomfortable in my own skin as well. And that just clicked for me. And so then when I started kind of diving into more of the codependency stuff and then asking more questions with my mom and her side of the family, wow, it just all made sense. Of course, it wasn't until a couple of years later when I was like, wait, I have problems I need to like actually work on. Yes, I've built awareness, but now I need to take that action and do something about that. So really that was a huge God moment that led me to that job that opened doors for me and my recovery rather than just my professional life. Nice. And it's a little sidebar. I fell into, I like to say, addiction recovery in the same sort of way. Another job fell through that I was applying for. I wasn't coming through. I'm moving to a new state. And someone says, well, there's this, there's this, what they say, like a boy's ranch where you get these guys up and you give them medications. Do you think you could do that? And I'm like, look, at this point, I just need a job. Yeah, sure, I'll show up. So I show up for the interview and the guy says, you know anything about recovery? And because it turns out legally, they can't ask, are you in recovery? But they can say, do you know anything about recovery? And of course, all of us here in recovery are like, oh yeah, man, I'm a couple years sober and blah, 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 blah. And the guy's like, all right, so uh, yeah, let's sign you on. And I, I like to say I went to treatment 15 years ago and never left. So Deanna, you're kind of talking about your shift into, I need to get recovery. And Travis, can you talk about what that looked like for you? For my active drinking and drugging, that career that I had, it was probably in the last six months is when I really started being hopeless. It's when it really stopped working for me. My skin was turning yellow. My body wasn't processing it like it used to. Just a couple beers was putting me in like a blackout state. And my mind couldn't reconcile that fact when before I was drinking, you know, a 30 pack. And I really don't know if I realized that I was powerless over it yet, but I definitely realized it wasn't working anymore. I really felt like I had lost like a sidekick, like my best friend, my ride or die that was with me for the last 15, 16 years had given up on me and was nowhere to be found. And I didn't know what to do. My solution was gone and I was scared. I've been scared my whole life, but then I was like the first, like, it was like terrifying. I didn't know what to do. And I knew I had friends like on Facebook who had gotten sober. I really didn't know much about any 12 step programs. I had gone into some rooms before that because, you know, my back hurt and I had to get my wife off of it. Uh, so I'd gone to a couple meetings, but I did, wasn't there to listen. I wasn't there to identify with anybody. I wasn't there to, to see the similarities I was there to pick up chip, sign a page, check the boxes and get out. But I was in this like hopeless, scared state in the last you know, few months of my career. And I had known some friends who gotten sober on Facebook. I saw them taking pictures of these coins and I'm uh, two months sober or whatever. And I started reaching out to them and they were like, just get to a meeting. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't want to do that. I was scared. So I started reaching out then. And then I would wake up in the morning in my Google search results and a blackout state would be like AA meetings. I was trying. And it's funny because it was when I was drunk is when I was really wanting recovery. I wanted something else. But when I was sober, I was like, I was just drunk. I don't really mean it. You know, the last day that I drank, I was coming home from a business trip. It's funny because if you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's always these businessmen 
and they're getting into trouble on business trips. And that's what happened. I was in a business trip at Dallas, ended. I live in San Antonio. It's four hours away. It took me four hours to get halfway home because I kept having to pull over to either throw up or to get more drinks just to maintain, just to keep my hands from shaking, just to be able to physically make it home. Then I got pulled over by a Bell County Sheriff. They made me walk a line and I was like, you know, it was it. The, the shoe was up. In fact, I'd been pulled over before and I did that foxhole prayer of like, just get me out of this one, God, and I'll never drink again, right? This time when I saw a light behind me, I went, oh, here we go. Like, I didn't even try. I had given up so completely that I didn't even try to. I was just like, well, I'm done. And I really, I think I had my first like real God moment in the drunk tank there. Cause it was like the first time that I conceded to like my innermost self, this isn't working. I can't continue going on like this. I'm clearly powerless over this without even knowing anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or anything. I had just succumbed to step one. I had completely conceded to it before I even knew anything about it. The next day I got bailed out. My parents came and picked me up, which wasn't fun. I'd rather probably just stayed in there. They drove me the two hours back home. We didn't really talk. All I had said is that I think I need help. And they're like, well, yeah. And then they said, don't worry. When you get home, your sister's already there. And I was like, well, what is she going to do? And then like the cartoon light bulb came above my head. And I'm like, oh yeah. What does she do for a living? Like I was searching and looking for help at these Facebook friends that are three ways disconnected from me. I'm trying to find help in any way that I can. And I had a sister who is all the help I would ever need. When I got back home, I packed a bag and I got into a treatment center. And, you know, I went to that treatment center and I gave it everything that I could. And I found God there. So, you know, it's a special place for me and never been happier and more free ever since then. Dana, what was it like for you to presumably get a call from your family saying, okay, Travis is in jail or whatever it is? What was that side of the experience for you? I remember it was a Sunday. Chelsea called me crying. So I just went over. I said, hey, what's going on? And she told me the situation. And I said, all right, what do you need? And I think because at that point I had been in Al-Anon for a couple of years already. So I had already detached to where I was like, you know, when Travis is ready and needs help, they can always ask me, right? Rather than me being, I guess, proactive and like trying to rescue and fix the situations. Can you talk about how Al-Anon helped you make that change from I'm going to go fix it to I'll be here when he's ready? Yeah, I think it allowed me to let go of control of everything I really don't have control over. So it allowed me to focus on me. Really, it was when I did my fourth step and I realized how many problems I really have. I was like, well, I have a lot of work to do. I'm putting all my attention on that and how I can resolve some of that took a lot of attention from everything else outside of my control. So learning how to detach with love, stop trying to control not only Travis, I mean, even my own husband, right? And anybody in my life. So it really gave me a sense of freedom to really just enjoy life with acceptance of whatever happens and giving me the skills to deal with life problems and learning how to adapt and lean on my higher power, my God, more. So yeah, there was a lot of relief in that in the program. And so when Travis was ready, I was like, all right, God did his thing, right? And so I was just there and available. You know, when I heard that he was ready to go to treatment, I was like, okay, I'll, I'll make a phone call. And, and at that point, you know, I also had to talk to my sponsor and my, my supervisor, and we had to discuss boundaries, right? Because again, like this is his journey, just because I'm helping him get into treatment, like ultimately that's his choice. 
And everything he does each day at that treatment center is his choice and his journey and not mine. I don't remember having much fear while he was there. I don't remember ever feeling concerned if he was going to leave early or, or anything. I think I had some concerns when he left, right. You know, going back to his home and how he was going to live with that. But again, that didn't consume me. I didn't feel controlled by that fear. So I was just happy to see him get help. I think I was just so happy for him. And I'm still very proud and happy to see him grow and see what he's accomplished in the program and how many people he's helped. So yeah, very excited for him. Now, when you talk about like not falling deep into the fear, which is something that most family members struggle with while their loved ones are treatment, right? It's a relief for like the first week or so. You're like, oh man, they made it, they're safe. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, what's gonna happen when they leave? Are they really getting it, blah, blah, blah. Could you speak to how much your recovery work helped you to be at more peace while he was in treatment and afterwards? I think it was because I was at peace well before he got the help he needed that if he were to relapse, like I'm going to be okay. Cause I've been okay. And so again, this had to be his journey and for me to kind of step aside because for the last, I think it was a couple years before he actually went into treatment, I had taken a step back. So I kind of already had that practice there. So uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of what helped me and just trusting God in the process, right? So if he's to relapse, that is part of his journey and I will be okay. <laughs> and hopefully he will too. And Travis, what was it like for you to go through that experience of treatment? And I don't know if you reflected at the time that, hey, my sister works at a treatment center, et cetera, et cetera. But just what was it like for you to go through that experience? Mm. You know, um, I was still in so much fear. I didn't get like relief from fear immediately. And I knew that I was like in a safe place. I knew that there wasn't anything that was going to get me there, but it definitely gave me a sense of relief. Obviously I wasn't going to use while I was there unless I really put my mind to it and made like some toilet hooch or something. I do remember that I found God there and I was starting to feel really good. My body felt better. My mind was getting clearer. And spiritually, I was feeling I was on that pink cloud that everyone talks about. And then I was like three days away from processing out of there. And I just was struck like by lightning with fear of, oh, no, I'm about to leave. And I'm going to be back out in the real world. I'm not going to be in this bubble. I'm not going to be protected anymore. And I went straight to my counselor. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to extend myself for 15 more days. And... Like, again, that was like a selfish thing, because meanwhile, my wife is at home with now two kids being a single mom. And I'm there selfish trying to figure out how I'm going to stay in treatment for another 15 days so I don't have to go home. And again, I don't have to face anything head on. And luckily, I had the counselor who I did because they told me exactly what I needed to hear and didn't let me extend. And I had to go out into the so-called real world and face everything. And, you know, I did that first day out. I didn't have a license because, you know, your boy got his license taken from him. And I walked to my first meeting. I found a meeting and I walked there and I sat down and I didn't burst into flames. I talked in that meeting and people after the meeting got up and hugged me and shook my hand. And I got a bunch of phone numbers. And, you know, at, at that moment is when I really got my relief and freedom from a lot of fear that I knew I could do this and everything's going to be okay because I have the fellowship on my side. I have the program on my side, but most importantly, I have my God on my side. And, you know, before that, 
like the God that I was raised with wasn't necessarily on my side. That God was something in the sky that I was supposed to fear and I was supposed to worship. And now my understanding of my God is someone who I can walk with, someone who can guide me. It's a friend. It's someone who I just talk to like I'm talking to you. My God is someone who I have a relationship with, and it's completely different, and it's, it's changed my life. And I would have never have gotten that if I wouldn't have gone to treatment, because it was at the treatment center where I first found out that I can make a God of my own understanding, and it was nothing that I'd ever experienced before. Before that, it was your God is this, you memorize these lines, this is who your God is, this is the denomination we are, and we're, you know, kind of against everyone else, and don't make God mad. That's a huge difference. It's a a mountain of difference. Yeah, it's one of my personal favorite subjects around spirituality and that sense of connection, and what you're talking about, like a personal relationship, how important that is for people in recovery, and, and how misunderstood that can be for people outside of recovery who are looking in that thought of like, oh, no, I need to join this cult and conform to something. And I'm going to have to, you know, like you said, read, memorize some lines and, and, uh, you know, kneel when everybody kneels and stand up when they stand up and all this kind of stuff and go get saved. And it's not the same thing at all. Let's take a break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll finish our interview with Deanna and Travis. Among our sponsors, the most important one is you. We are so grateful for your support and our mission to help people with addiction and their families find recovery. Here are some ways you can help. I have a website at caseyauthor.com where you can find all the various ways I'm working to spread a message of hope for anyone struggling with addiction and anyone who loves them. There you can find videos, interviews I've given on other people's podcasts, and information on both my books, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, and Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, a primer. Both are available on Amazon and other retailers as both paperback and ebook. If you have read them, please tell a friend or anyone you think might be helped by their message. There's also a link to help support us on Patreon.com. Your subscriptions help make all this possible. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit Patreon.com and look up Addiction and the Family. Thanks again. We couldn't do this without you. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of that interview with Deanna and Travis. While you were at the treatment center, did you all engage in family work or family programming there? And what, if any, difference did that make for you? Yes. So I participated in two weeks of the family workshop that was offered at his treatment center. On both occasions, your wife, Chelsea, was there, as well as Lori and John, Mm -hmm. our parents. And then the second week, your older brother was there. So I want to kind of check on that because you're talking about the situation where, like you said, everybody had been at each other's throat for a while. Everybody's going through their own stuff. What was it like to get everybody together in the same room and say, okay, now we're doing some work? It was work. I don't think I was as ready as I could be for that, to face that with the whole family. The truth is that me going to treatment set off a, like a chain reaction. It disrupted the whole family dynamic because we all had these roles I felt like the black sheep and I was always the, the screw up and I was like the drunk one. And then there were, there was all these roles. And by me seeking help, I think it started highlighting other roles in the family that were toxic as well. And I don't think anything ugly likes the light being shined on it. And I think that's kind of what happened in the beginning. Granted, family is night and day now, you know, as much as this is a family illness, it's also a family recovery. And I think that's one of my favorite things. But in the beginning, it was work, and it wasn't necessarily pretty work. It wasn't easy. The 
isms, the sickness was fighting hard as hell to keep its spot where it liked to be. And we were fighting hard as hell to change. And for what you're saying from the afterwards perspective, it sounds like you've been able to make some of that change and sustain it. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody individually has done things to better themselves. And as a result, the family has gotten better. I know for my section, my little family, for my wife and two kids, my wife started going to Al-Anon. And then as a result, found out that she had some other things going on. And she's now actually, she's five days more sober than I am. I mean, I wake up earlier than she is, so I'm more sober, but she's sober too. And our kids are in therapy and they're getting the help. And I know that my mom is getting professional help. And I just, it's across the board. I think everybody's better and we've set up healthy boundaries that just make us more of a cohesive family we still got our works and every family does we still got our things and every once in a while people will get a little sideways at each other but i think that's just family but as a whole we are much more cohesive before it was let's make sure that we look good from the outside And it doesn't really matter other than that. We just want to make sure that the window shopping looks good. And now we're actually healing and good from the inside, which shines on the outside. And I think that's what everybody wanted in the first place. I'll say as a guy who loves to do family work, that just hearing that really warms my heart. And Deanna, if I can ask for you as someone who worked at a treatment center, now you get to go sit down in the seat as like, okay, now I'm showing me as a family member. What was that family member experience like for you? doing family work at the treatment center? I actually was very excited about that opportunity. You know, I've been in therapy myself and I love going to therapy. So for me, I'm able to switch off the therapist hat. I think, at least from my perspective, maybe some family members might say otherwise, but you know, I I think it was a very difficult experience though. I think it brought up a lot more problems that were already there, right? I think it just kind of brought it up to the surface for us to like really address. And I can recall a time during that experience, it wasn't addressed the best way. It just happened to get addressed, just some issues that were going on. And I don't even remember what they were. I don't think it was that big of a deal. But it just exploded. And like what Travis was saying, that with Travis focusing on his recovery, Chelsea then focusing on her recovery, me kind of learning a new role in the family, taking a step back because everybody had their issues with each other. It wasn't just Travis. It was everybody. For many of us, just redirecting our attention from everybody else to just ourselves really helped. And I can't say that our family is perfect. You know, I still see some stuff, but I think for me, I'm handling it differently, right? To where before there was a lot of manipulation and gossiping going on on my end. And now it's like, I don't have to engage in those behaviors to be accepted or part of the family. And, you know, I always look to Travis because we kind of have this connection now, now that he's sober, I think you referred it as, you know, we're each other's battle buddies. So when we go to family events, at least we have each other there and we're able to connect. And so I think we're able to connect better as a family with other family members. But if we ever feel overwhelmed, Travis and I can like talk on the side and, you know, and having him there for support, that emotional mental support is really helpful. And so whatever else happens in the family, you know, we're going to get through it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I do think we operate a lot better now. There's definitely a world of a difference, especially our parents when they engaged in the family workshop. I think they gained a lot of insight 
And I see a lot less control coming from them to us. So a lot of people are playing a role in how our family operates now. And it's, it's much better. Mm, that's beautiful to hear. And I love the sort of full circle thing of, yeah, at some point, Travis is saying, hey, Deanna, I need support. And now you, Deanna, can turn and say, hey, Travis, I need support. And that you're able to support each other. And it changes that dynamic from, hey, here's the person with the problem and here's the person with the solution to people who can work with each other through problems and solutions. And that is just so cool to hear. So talking a little more about how, if at all, you guys see your recoveries interact with each other now and what it's done for your relationship as two siblings. I love our relationship now. <laughs> no, I wholeheartedly agree. 100%. Like it's what I imagine a sibling relationship is supposed to be. Yeah. And I know that if no one else is going to answer the phone, I know that Dee will and she'll drop what she's doing to talk to me. And that's an amazing thing. As far as how our recoveries work together, um, I can only speak for myself, but I know that my recovery has made me a more honest person and it's made me a happier person and it's made me a more free person. And I think that it has just allowed me to take down that wall just for a moment just to let D over and build that connection to where I don't need to have that wall anymore. And it's allowed me to where at family events, I'm not the guy who's hiding out in the corner playing on the phone anymore. I mean, sometimes I got to get my candy crush on, but I'll look up and D will be staring at me. And she's like, what are you doing over there? I'm like, all right, I'll get up and I'll interact with the family. I think it's just allowed me to bring down those defensive mechanisms that I've put in place. And it's just allowed me to connect with her on a much, much deeper level, as well as just other people in my life. You know what I mean? It's allowed me to be a better husband, a better father. It's so strange when I talk about this because it's very hard for me to relate to the person that I was four years ago. It's almost like I disassociate from it completely because it's a completely different person sitting here before you right now. I've said it before that if I walked out the door three and a half years ago and walked back in the same guy that I was right now, I'd be like, oh my God, it's a burning, but start a religion because it's a completely different person. And that's what my recovery has done for me. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I dealing with a lot of isolation and rejection growing up, I dealt with a lot of stuff by myself, like as an only child, when going through a lot of bad things that were happening in our household, I was always alone in that process. And so looking for support, looking to belong somewhere, you know, I mentioned when I first got into the field, it was like, I relate to these people. And then when I got in the meeting rooms, it was like this sense of belonging. Right. And I remember doing work with my sponsor and going through the fourth step and being like, I can't share this with her. Like she is going to fire me <laughs> if she hears this and just feeling that fear of rejection again, right? All this stuff because of my fourth step. And I remember omitting things in my fifth step when I was going over it with her and I stopped and I said, wait, I, I wasn't fully honest with you. There's more. And she was like, okay. And so I shared it with her and she goes, okay, thank you for sharing. And I was like, okay, that's it. You know, no reaction, nothing. From, and she was just very non-judgmental. And I think meeting a lot of people who are in the rooms that are just non-judgmental, right? Because everybody has been through so much that has allowed me to kind of take on that perspective with others, right? Having that compassion and lack of judgment, being accepting of others, right? Because I, I wasn't able to be accepting of myself. 
and being completely forgiving. So I think I've been able to adapt those virtues into the relationship with myself, right? Being able to forgive myself and my relationship with others. And just like Travis, it has helped me tremendously be a better parent. I'm more present with my kids. I'm more compassionate with my husband, right? Where before it was like my patience and my tolerance was so low, but yeah, it's allowed me to have more fulfilling relationships with other people as well as with Travis. And I trust Travis and I trust what he's doing, you know, in his recovery. And so when it, when somebody is struggling in need of a sponsor or need of a contact, I'm like, Hey, Travis, do you want, you want to talk to this person? He's a great referral source for me. <laughs> so yeah, it's just helpful to have him in my corner. And I know that if I ever have those dark thoughts or feelings that come up, because it's like those feelings of feeling alone or feeling rejected, that's not forever away, right? I just have the tools now to work through those things that come up. And so knowing that I have Travis in my corner, that's just another tool for me to battle those thoughts. Wonderful stuff, both of you. So we'll go ahead and start just wrapping up there. And I want to thank you both so much for coming on and talking about this and sharing part of yourselves and your story and just noticing the beauty of that shift from 13, 14, 15 for both of you and saying we basically had no relationship, didn't know how to have a relationship, weren't even sure what it was supposed to look like or if we even wanted it. We were just off doing our own thing to being able to fast forward to this time with both of you in your own recovery and finding how much connection that brings to the two of you. I just can't thank you enough for coming in and, and talking about this today. Of course. Thank you, Casey. It was fun. And that's our interview with Deanna and Travis. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.